Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the show. I'm joined today by some guy I just met. I really don't know who he is. Um, Just kidding, guys. Jeffrey Holst is um, an amazing guy. And in the short few minutes we spent chatting before uh, we went and began recording, um, I'm getting a real good flavor of who who Jeff is. And and it's it's interesting to, to do your homework and do your research, right? But then when you connect with somebody, uh, almost instantaneously, you, you get a feel of, of what they're about. Jeff's a public speaker. Of course, he's a, an investor, multifamily and commercial. Uh, he's a podcaster. He's an author. He's a public speaker. He's a coach. And when he's not swimming with sharks, he's, he's out crushing real estate deals. So welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. That's one of the best introductions ever. I, I love it. Thank you. Okay, here we go. We're off to a good start. So, Jeff, you you're one of uh, these people that have this this theme that we seem to talk about over and over on the show. Um, you've got uh, this thread of adventure, right? That's woven into your DNA clearly, and um, it, it, we all seem to have the common elements to our temperament, our DNA, uh, like a, a serial entrepreneurs, right? We're all kind of cut from that same cloth, but you're you're doing it, man. You're out living your best life. And like, like, I hate that expression, but it seems like that's, that's what you're doing. Yeah, no. So I hate the expression too, actually. So I totally get it. Um, people say that to me all the time. We actually have our own brand called last life ever. It's just about recognizing that this, it's like art. It's like a, a less gangster version of YOLO, right? Like it's like you only live once, but, but a lot less on the gangster side. Uh, Last Life Ever is just about living as, you know, living like you only have this one chance and and doing the things that are important to you, whatever those happen to be. And, um, uh, and for us, that's, uh, you know, you said that that the people that come on your show and the people that you deal with are cut from that cloth, but I actually think everyone is, I think just some people suppress it um, and don't live into it. And I'm on a mission to be the very best Jeff Holst I can. Um, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't try to be me either any more than I should try to be you. You know, like you can be inspired by the stuff that I do. I can be inspired by the stuff you do or the stuff Arnold Schwarzenegger does. It doesn't matter, but I'm never going to be Arnold, right? Like I don't want to be Arnold. I want to be like a really good version of me. So what what, what is it that gives someone like you the confidence, the tenacity, uh, the will to take that leap. Well, we all talk about it, man. We, we do. And we, we all say that we're, we're out living the life we want to live and we're doing the things we want to do. But, you know, when you have those moments and you're looking in the mirror, so few of us actually do it. Yeah, no, that's that's actually why I talk about this stuff, you know, I come on shows and just try to encourage people to lean into their units, right? Um, but it, what it really comes down to is when we get, and no one's ever asked the question quite like that before, so I appreciate it. I think that 
Um, I've read lots of stories of people on their deathbed and those people aren't regretting the things they did. They're always regretting the things that they didn't do. Right. I've always wanted to do this and I didn't do it. And so I think we all come to that realization at some point. Um, unfortunately, most people just come to it way too late. Your deathbed is obviously too late to come to the realization you need to start doing those things. Life's super short. It goes really fast. <laughs> and, um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, some people recognize it earlier than others. In my case, what caused me to be able to sort of, uh, you know, change the course of my life is that I got diagnosed with leukemia and I was told I was going to die. Um, I mean, and, and we believed it. Like, you know, I got diagnosed in uh, September of 2008 and um, I was a bankruptcy attorney. I wasn't unhappy, but I wasn't thriving. You know, I was doing well in my career. Uh, we were making money, but we, but, but I wasn't like excited about life like I am now. And, um, and when I got diagnosed, I was kind of like, well, that sucks. There's a lot of stuff I still want to do. <laughs> I never did. I mean, I'd done some cool stuff. I mean, I had just gotten back from Machu Picchu at the time. Um, and I had been to Egypt uh, twice by then. And uh, so, you know, I'd done some really cool traveling type stuff, but I um, really had just enormous amounts of things that I thought I was going to do someday. And one of those was invest in real estate. I wanted to invest in real estate since I was 15. There I was 30 years old. I didn't have any real estate other than my personal house. Um, and, uh, when I was diagnosed, um, we were having, remember this is September, we're having conversations that were like, um, if you live until February, um, this is my dad said that to me, actually. He said, if you live till February, I'll take you to Australia. And I was like, I just want to make it till Christmas. Like, that's where we were at. Like, it was really like for a period of time, I thought I definitely was going to die. Um, and I was still, you know, optimistic about life, if that makes any sense. I mean, I have this philosophy. I said to you off air that I never have bad days. I, I decided that when I was 17. I don't know why I did, um, but I did. And I built up, you know, at that point, you know, more than a decade of, of consecutive good days. And so people would come into the hospital to see me and they'd be saying things like, man, I bet today's a bad day. And I'm like, well, not really. Like most of the day was pretty good. Like finding out I had leukemia, that, that kind of sucked. But the rest of the day was all right. And, and, you know, people looked at me like I was insane. But the thing is, um, it felt that way to me. Um, I remember at one point there was a shift change and a new nurse came in. And she looked at me and she was like, oh, my God, Jeff, I'm so sorry to see you here. And I was like, oh, my God, Shelly, I'm so happy I'm here because this was like a childhood babysitter of mine. Because, like, I'm, like, so neurotic about not having bad days that my mind, like, looks for the positive in everything, right? And, and that's the thing about it is, like, um, good and bad stuff happens to everyone every day. I have a mentor who told me once that somewhere in the world right now, someone's having the worst day of their life. Someone else right now is having the best day of their life. So the day is like objectively neither good nor bad. It's really just how you perceive it that matters. And that's that resonates with me because that's how I felt in the hospital. Like, yeah, there was some bad stuff that happened, but like there was also some good stuff. And I just chose to focus on the positive. And I think that's how I got through it. I mean, I recovered. Um, I technically still have leukemia, which kind of sucks, you know, 15 years later, but, um, but, I, but it's under control. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm on borrowed time all the time. So the, the long answer to your question is I went through a health scare and I ended up in personal bankruptcy. So I was a bankruptcy attorney that filed bankruptcy. 
And, uh, and I said to myself, I got to do something different. And I just started doing it. I started living into my Jeffness, if you will, like living my life as well as I possibly could. And then that resulted in me investing in real estate and growing this portfolio. So from 32 to 37, I invested in single family properties. And when I turned 37, I quit my job and went full-time real estate. And that's all I've done since then. And that's given me incredible flexibility. And once I really embraced that flexibility, I thought, I got to tell people about this. This is freaking awesome. Like, I need to help people do this. So that's all I care about now is just help other people live well. So live your best life, even though I hate that well, expression. For, for sharing that, um, that's a pretty remarkable story and an and even more remarkable perspective that you have. Um, you decide to make the leap and dive into real estate, right? And, I, and I'm assuming financial freedom is, is the motivation behind this, right? Passive income, mailbox money, all of those buzz, buzzwords, that, that's what, what- Yeah, that, I'm, really. exactly. I mean, honestly, I, I, um, I take a little issue with the mailbox money thing because like there are ways to invest mostly passively, right? Like you can go invest in someone else's syndication or something like that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to set those up for people once in a while. I do syndicate every once in a while. Right. But, but um, you have to like still do some work. <laughs> like, like you shouldn't be completely passive or you're going to get screwed. I've done that. Like I once I, I met somebody and I thought they were pretty cool and they were telling me about a deal. And I went, that sounds good. Like I'm going to send them $50,000 and the deal didn't really work out very well. Like, you, know, you know, so like, like you can do that, but it's not a smart way to invest. So I, I take issue with mailbox money, but the rest of it, yeah. Like, like I wanted to create residual income. I wanted to put my money to work for me and I wanted to create real lasting generational wealth. So like my main motivator when I first started investing was I was a lawyer, I was high paid. My wife is not a lawyer. She's not as high paid as me. And I went, geez, if I die, like my wife's kind of screwed. Like we, we need to have our finances in order. I need to get my financial house in order. And one way to do that was to create some residual income for her if I did die. Cause you know, I mean, the first few years after I got sick, I actually spent most of the time assuming I had like, you know, a year or two to live. Um, now I'm, you know, I'm very lucky. I got on experimental treatment. That's no longer experimental. Now it's common uh, treatment for what I have. Um, and uh, I'm in a situation where, uh, you know, I'm probably I'm not going to die from the leukemia that I have. Um, but I didn't know that for the first couple of years. So that was a big motivator to get focused was like, I need to provide income for my wife. Like she needs to be okay if I'm not here. Wow. So uh, and believe me, I'm, I, I've been in real estate since I'm knee high to a grasshopper. I, I understand as, as much as anybody understands the unbelievable amount of work that goes into these deals, right? So um, the mailbox money is intended as, uh, you know, when, when the check is there every month, you know, reasonably assured. The mm. check there every oh, I, and I totally get it. I was just suggesting that, you know, it's a little yeah. deceptive. People, people get into this, oh, I want passive income. That's fine. I look at it as a scale of passivity, right? On one hand, you could like, build a ground up apartment complex by hand with hammers and nails of your own, right? Or on the other hand, you can buy someone else's deal that's already existed or a turnkey deal or invest in a REIT. And, and you're going to do different returns and different results depending on what side of that scale you're on. And I think you should do all of it. Like you should not necessarily build from the ground up, right? Not everyone's up, 
constituted for that. But like, you should be okay with doing some turnkey, some passive investing, some active investing, some flipping. Um, if you really want to make a career out of real estate, now, you know, not everyone wants to make a career out of real estate. And that's why I say, you know, I help people lean into the best version of their life. Um, and for me, that's real estate. For, for you, it's probably real estate. For most people listening, it's probably real estate. But there are going to be people that hear me talk and hear you talk and, and say, I have no interest in real estate. We all know those. The people that say, you're insane to invest in real estate. I don't want to have to like fix toilets. And I'm like, I don't remember the last time I fixed the toilet other than my own house, right? <laughs> like, like I don't go to like my tenants. I mean, I have 300 families that that live in places that I live, that I own, right? And, and those 300 people don't know who I am. So there, there's a, a lot of people now that uh, it's kind of become hip to trade the nine to five in and to invest in real estate. Um, and it's not as easy as people make it appear to be sometimes. I, I think that, that there are some folks out there um, that are, it's really misleading how uh, they make it seem so easy to get into this game and to perform. And there are portions of cycles where it is easy to make money. I sure. Think. If you bought four or five years ago, uh, pretty much, you know, you could have thrown a dart at an apartment building. You'd be fine. Like, like the market has been great the last five years, but the market will not always be great. It might be great the next five. I don't know for sure though. And that's the thing. I didn't know five years ago it would be great for the next five years. Now I kept buying. Cause I think if you're, um, careful and thoughtful about the risks that you're taking, you can buy in any part of the market cycle, but you have to be careful and thoughtful about the risks you're taking and you have to recognize the downsides. Yeah. W- w- without a doubt. And I think it's, it's really important to, to look backward before you move forward. There's a lot of, of clues um, about what's ahead. And I, I'm seeing folks, I, I call it buying payments I, I see these pro formers come across my desk constantly that, um, gosh, if, you, if you're specking on some of these cap rates that are really, really tight and you're banking on massive appreciation and you're not accounting for inflation on the expense side and you're not taking a look at when that debt comes due, the capital markets as they are today. Very yeah, I mean... Yeah, if you if you have to borrow money now, it's fine. But but I don't know that that would be the case in three years or five years, right? I mean, um, and you're right. I mean, like uh, another person I, I followed said to me once, and I've heard it from lots of people since. But um, they've never seen a pro forma that didn't work, right? It always looks good on paper when someone hands it to you. It always looks good, but you you need to be comfortable with your own numbers, and you better be sophisticated about how you're analyzing these deals because. Um, there are syndicators that I know. They're they're fine people. There's something wrong with them that I've done really well the last few years, uh, but they're not really sophisticated and they're not very smart. And um, I'm not, I'm not going to name people, obviously, but but I know people that have done really well the last few years that will do really really bad in the future because they're assuming that the market will always be like it is right now, and uh, that's that's a big risk point. And they might be fine for the next two, three, four, five years. I don't know, right? Um, but it's not a risk I'm willing to take. If I'm going to raise money for a deal, I'm going to make pretty darn sure that I'm comfortable losing my own money first. You know, like that's the thing. And, and that's a real issue for a lot of syndicators is they don't really have any skin in the game. So there's, there's really very little risk to them. 
Um, and so you got to be careful. That's, that's all I was saying about investing in other people's deals. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just you got to be careful. You better do your due diligence on who you're dealing with. And, and you better do your own due diligence on the deal and make sure it makes sense. Yeah. You know, we hear people talk about uh, the OMs, you know, the offering memorandums. Well, it, it clearly states what the risks are and it clearly talks about things that can happen. And nobody has a crystal ball. And, and I get all of that. But there are a lot of metrics that you can and should be looking at that we're finding more and more, not only are they not looking at them, uh, a lot of people when pressed don't even have a clue. I know people that are doing this kind of work that don't even know what an internal rate of return is. Like they literally, they, they, they put it on their, on their projections. They say the IRR is this and you go, great. Like, how'd you calculate that? I don't know. Somebody told me that's what it was. Like, it's like, well, okay. Well, do you know what an IRR is? Right. Like, like if you don't know, then like maybe you probably ought not tell people what it's going to be. Right. And, um, and, you know, and those things are hard to calculate and there's a lot of fudges in that. Right. Like, like, like what's your exit cap rate going to be? Like, this is like, uh, to me, this is something that really bugs me. I see all the time people say, well, cap rates are going down. So I'm buying this at a five cap and I'm going to sell it at a four and a half cap five years from now. Well, that's garbage. There's no way you can know cap rates are going down. Um, you can't know it because cap rates are like the market's idea of where the market is going. Like the reason the cap rate is five now, if we assume that's the actual cap rate on that particular property now is that the entirety of the market, all of the possible knowledge together agrees that that's what it's worth, which the only thing we know of is that five years from now that the market hasn't accounted for is that building's going to be five years older. Like everything else would be the same. Like, like if cap rates are going to go down and everyone knew it, they already went down. Right. So, so to me, like, yes, cap rate might go down on that particular property, but, but that property, like all things being equal is much more likely to have a higher cap rate in the future because it'll be an older building. And so that's why like, you know, old school economic theory says that cap rates go up about, you know, 10 basis points a year on a property. Um, so when you underwrite, you should follow old school economic theory. You should say I'm buying it at five. And if I sell it five years from now, it's going to be five and a half. And no one's doing that. Like I haven't seen a syndicator have a higher exit cap rate in two years. Like I haven't seen anybody. They all go, oh, it's going to be better five years from now than it is now. And that, that's absurd. Like if it is going to be better, great. I hope it is. It'll be good for all of us, right? But I don't know how we can possibly know what the future is. And if we did know, it would have already happened. So, Yeah, so they're not only are they not accounting for some of the standard metrics, they're assuming multiple liquidity events. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, that just the assumptions are startling. And and when, you know, folks, for those of us that have, have seen multiple cycles, um, it, 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 we're not here to, to scare you off. Uh, I personally believe that we are at a moment in time where it may be the best time to, to get into real estate. We're at a point where inflation hasn't yet driven the rates, although I believe that's absolutely coming. Many of you have heard me talk about it. A lot of people talked about it for many years. We didn't. I believe the time is now. Um, and as that happens, the capital markets are going to change dynamically. And if you're making investments that are predicated on liquidity events, you need to be darn sure that you're contemplating a very different interest rate environment at that point, and that you're accounting for 
uh, a number of different variables on the expense and income side. Uh, if, if it's not making sense today, do not bank on it making sense tomorrow because chances are it won't. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think of that. So like, I mean, obviously some of it depends on what your strategy is, right? Like you can have a value add deal where like it might not make sense today, but you know, for sure six months from now it will, because you're going to, you're going to do some kind of like renovations or something and get the rents up. Um, But that, that, all that saying is like, it's poorly managed now and you're going to fix that. Right. Like, um, and there's a place for that. And, and, and I do a lot of that stuff, but, but if, if your numbers are assuming that, you know, 18 months from now, you're going to be able to borrow at sub 3% interest rates. Um, you know, like, like we, I mean, that might be the case. It could be right. Like I actually, you know, I mean, the Fed said they're going to raise rates three times this year. Um, I suspect they're either going to raise rates zero times or they're going to raise it 10 times. Like it's going to be, it's not going to be, it, to me, three is a very unlikely outcome. It might be 10 times in the next two years. So my, technically be three this year right but but i mean it's it's going to be one or the other right like either we're going to have like you know the the omicron's going to scare everyone away and like the inflation's going to tame itself down because like they're going to be putting more stimulus to try to like save the economy again or in the alternative we're going to have inflation which seems more likely and then they're going to have to raise rates a lot more than seven you know, 75 basis points. It's not going to be a, um, we're going to go up a three quarters of a percent. It's going to be, we're going up 3%. I couldn't agree with you more. And you're one of the very few who even see that as a possibility. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to say it's. I have, I have no idea. I just think it's like, I think that's more likely than the alternative, which is that we, we, we raise rates a tiny bit and, you know, you underwrite your deals two years from now, borrowing at 50, you know, at a half a point more than you are now, um, which is what I, the people that are being conservative are doing that. Like right. I stress test my deals. If I'm looking at refinancing in two years, I'm going like, okay, what if I have to pay 6%? You know, like, what does that look like? Am yeah. I am I going to be okay? Now, it might not be as good of a deal at 6%. And obviously, if I can do three, I'm happy. Like, like I'm not going to complain. But, you know, if it works at 6 or 7%, it definitely works at 3%. Right. And and I'd rather be in the, it works okay, uh, you know, at this, this higher rate situation. And like, honestly, I'm trying to do as much long-term debt or even like when we structure deals now, um, we're looking at deals and saying, okay, um, this is a, you know, it has an interest only period, but it converts to amortizing debt automatically. So, so maybe we can't refinance and have that liquidity event, but we have this lower rate locked in. I just had a conversation about that last night, advising somebody, you, you need to be looking to pay more for the debt today with the option to extend. Look, it's a cycle. It goes up, it goes down, it goes back up, it goes back down. The, the, the key is you need to be able to get to the other side of the rainbow, yep. right? Yeah. And we've seen periods of two, three years where it doesn't matter how good the deal is. It doesn't matter how strong the sponsor Can't borrow. You cannot borrow. There is no debt. So even performing loans become non-performing loans. And certain banks and certain lenders, when they carry too many of those deals and they can't be taken out, they fall out of compliance. Notes start being cut and sold at... 70% discounts. Like we've seen all this, been there, done that. And yeah. as long as you can get to the other side of the rainbow, that's okay. But if, but in fact, if you can get to the other side of the rainbow, you're much richer for it because yeah. all the riffraff is out there and you're getting an opportunity to buy stuff that no one else can buy. Because if you're performing uh, when everyone else has failed, 
Um, then when the credit markets start to open back up, you're the best borrower out there. The banks yeah. look at you first and say, hey, James, like, you know what? I've got these three things in my, uh, you know, that we take it back that we want to get rid of and we want to give them to you. <laughs> like, and you're getting them at discounts then. So, so yeah, you, you know, this is scary stuff, right? But it's also like opportunity. And I, I've said this for years. I made uh, a lot of money in 2010, 11, and 12 because no one else could make money then. And, and I will be honest, I was not a good borrower then. We couldn't borrow money then. I had just filed bankruptcy. I had no assets. I had a negative net worth. I mean, we still made a lot of money in chaos. So I'm excited about that. Like, like I'm going to survive this. I know that. Like, I mean, I, I know I'm in a position to survive. And I know that if something bad happens, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to be very rich. Um, yeah. I actually still hope nothing bad happens. It's better for the world if it doesn't happen. I, and I haven't, I mean, listen, I, I'm fine. I, I can pay my bills forever. I don't care. I don't, I don't need to be very rich. But if it happens, I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. Because someone should. And someone will. Yeah. And, okay. and it's not, I mean, actually you'd be bailing people out. I mean, that's, that's the sad part, right? The people that are making bad investments now are going to get hurt. They will. If that, if the world goes the way it could. Um, and, uh, and you're going to be helping them by taking it off their hands. I mean, the banks are making bad loans now too. I mean, the fed has created a system that's, um, that's made it possible to make bad loans again. And when you make bad loans, bad stuff happens. That's what happened last time. It's yeah. not quite as bad from a lending perspective as it was before. And in our world, multifamily, even before, there wasn't a huge amount of defaults. Um, but, but especially in the smaller deals, um, you know, when you're talking about single families or even, you know, small multifamilies, um, I would be really, really careful because I think there's going to be a lot of people burned in that market. Yeah. You'll see people burn in the multifamilies, but it'll be more burned like they lost their investment and they didn't end up bankrupt, you know, because they had to sell at a discount to people that didn't make bad decisions at the beginning. No, no question about it, man. And God, is this a refreshing conversation? Because most people I have this discussion with, they think I'm nuts and they feel like I'm, I'm doom and gloom, but it's not doom and gloom. It's just the reality of a possible scenario that we're all going to be dealing with in the next two or three years. Yeah. And listen, I mean, there are people that have been predicting this stuff forever, so we could be wrong. Right. I mean, look, I have a friend, um, Harry Dent. He's an economist, right? Harvard trained, super smart guy. He's been predicting a crash since like 1997. <laughs> like, I mean, like, like, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Harry probably be mad at me for saying that, but like, you know, he sold a ton of books, predicted a lot of things correctly, but literally for the last 10 years, he's saying we're due for a crash any second. Um, you know, I read his newsletter. It said that we're going to have a huge crash before the end of January. So we're January 6th. So we'll see. I hope he's wrong. Um, I've told him as much, you know, <laughs> but I also know people that sold all their real estate in 2013 because the market was too hot. And they said, I'm going to wait until the market corrects. And what I know about that is if you could buy in 2013 prices now, even when the market corrects, you'll be fine. Right. You, so you bad choice. Time. You can't time the market, folks. You can make smart decisions to hedge, but you cannot time the market. You yeah. can't sit and wait and try and pick the right time to get in, the right time to get out. You have to consistently be making sound decisions based on fundamentals and you'll be just fine. Yeah, because you know, here's the thing. Um, if you bought in 2006 or seven and you sold or refinanced in 2010, you got crushed. If you bought in 2006 or seven and you're selling or refinancing, now you're super wealthy, right? So like long-term, this stuff is fine. Like if you buy something today, even if the peak of the market is 
is today. And I, I think we probably have a little runway left, but let's say it was today. Like if you bought it today at the highest possible price and it cash flows and you have long-term debt in place and you have adequate cash reserves, it does not matter what it's worth a year from now or two years from now. What matters is it's still cash flowing and it's, you still have long-term debt in place. You can just wait it out. It's actually, you said you can't time the market. I actually think it's stupid easy to time the market. The way you time the market is you buy whenever and you only sell when it's high. Like that's how you time the market. Just buy whenever you buy, sell when it's high. Yeah. Like, like if, as long as you can hold this stuff long-term, you can always just wait until the market's high and then sell. Absolutely. So well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your portfolio. You've got a pretty, pretty diverse portfolio, industrial, strip centers, residential. Where yeah. are you? Are you leaning one way or the other now? Are you, are you ramping one side up and, and backing off another or are you still keeping it rounded? Well, I've gotten out of, I mean, the main thing I've been getting out of is the smaller deals. So single families were almost out completely. Um, I bought a couple of duplexes because they were really good deals recently, but, but even duplexes, triplexes, quads, we're, we're, we're trying to get out of all that stuff, I'm trying to stick to commercial multifamily. Um, part of that's just a scaling thing. It's just a lot easier for us at this stage. But, but another part of it is that stuff's more susceptible to a market correction than, than income-based properties. Um, income-based properties are, you know, they're priced on income. And I'm comfortable in our ability to manage the income. And so I think we can keep the values up. No, they'll still go down in value, right? Cap rates go up. That's, it doesn't matter if your income stays the same, your value goes down. But if your income stays the same and you're paying your debt and you have long-term debt in place, then that's, that's okay. So, so we've been really focused on getting out of that lower end stuff. And then, um, and then the other thing that, that I'm looking at is really like how, especially in, in um, retail space, I'm very concerned about um, certain sectors of the retail space. I don't think Starbucks is going anywhere. If you buy a Starbucks, you're probably fine. In the recession, people are still going to drink coffee. They're just going to not, you know, go to the movies as much, right? So I wouldn't buy a movie theater. Right? I mean, especially in a post-COVID world. But um, so, so retail, I'm a little bit more picky about. I like industrial, especially like industrial flex space quite a bit. Um, but I still think the one that you have the most long-term stability in is, is, is you know, B and, and better C-class multifamily. I don't do D at all. Uh, I prefer not even the lower C-class, but like a C-plus uh, to about a B-plus, I feel really good about. The A stuff, the cap rates are so low now, it's hard to imagine buying it and, and making that work. So if you can do a value-add B, especially a value-add C that you can convert to a B, Golden. That's what I want to buy. Uh, but again, even when I do that, I'm doing shorter horizons. I'm looking at how fast can I turn it around? Because when I buy something for, you know, that's got a value add and I'm going to do a construction loan or something like that, um, I want to like turn it around really fast and get to that long-term debt as fast as possible because I don't want to get stuck hanging with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm being way more selective about it and, and I'm, and I'm sticking to that sort of narrow band of C plus B minus that I can raise it a little bit up and get it done fast. Well, what, what are you finding are the most effective ways to source deals? How are you sourcing your deals now? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just tell people, I tell everyone what I want. And, and the more specific you are, the better. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of it's broker relationships. We, you know, we buy in only really two markets. Like we buy in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we buy in, in Metro Detroit. Um, and we have a reputation in both of those markets. So, we, you know, as a person that if we put it under contract, we're going to close it. Now, there are obviously exceptions, but when there's an exception, it, they know why there's an exception. And we'll pull the... Uh, cord quick if we're going to leave, right? Like, um, and I think as long as you build a reputation of being consistent and an integrity, uh, and, and they know when you make the offer that you're serious, um, you're going to get those deals. Um, and I think that, that, you know, it's hard to compete with brokers. Like, I mean, these guys are messaging and they've got CoStar and they're talking to every owner 50,000 times over. Um, it's very difficult to compete with them. So instead of competing with them, I just pay them. Got it. So when did you enter the Detroit market? Actually, the very first deal I ever bought was in Detroit in 2011. Um, it was the first, it was a condo, a single family condo. We actually still own it. It's in Birmingham. So it's like a nice suburb of Detroit. Um, and, uh, and it was a bank owned foreclosure, you know, bottom of the recession. We paid 30,000. It's probably worth 150 now. Um, we bought two in the same building and, and I probably never sell them, even though I said I'm getting out of single families because they're just so dang stable, you know, like, and I know they could go back down to 30,000, but I don't care because like, I know what the rents are, you know, if the market crashes completely. And I don't think they go back to 30, maybe they go to 70, right. Or something that's okay with me because, you know, they cash flow and, and we've been there easy to keep. But um, yeah, so that's when I started there. We started multifamily in Detroit in 2017. Um, and then again, not in the city. Again, it's in Macomb County mostly. Um, so, so areas outside of the city, uh, workforce housing, we did a lot of section eight um, and, and we've done really well on that. But now we're at a point where, uh, you know, we've rolled a lot of our local community stuff into non-recourse long-term debt, you know, 10 year terms in the last six months and we have a couple more that we're going to roll into that in the next six months. And then, and then it's just, you know, set it and forget it kind of stuff. Like that's done. Yeah. And then cash flow like crazy. Like we're moving to like pull cash out and having payments be the same because we bought it at a higher interest rate environment in some cases on 20 year amortization schedules instead of 30. So we can, we can actually pull cash out and keep our payment the same or less. Uh, and, and to me, that's that's the best possible place to be right now, because even though there probably will be inflation, um, if you borrow dollars and there's inflation and you leave the dollars in your bank account, you lose money on the dollars you left in your bank account, but you gain the same amount back on the dollars that you're paying back cheaper. So, you know, because you've got the inflation hedge in the debt. So I'm going to stack as much cash as I can. Uh, and utilize that to buy the best deals I can. If there's a great deal, I'll buy it. If not, I'm just going to wait because I'd rather have cash if prices go down. Yeah. So uh, as as COVID has, has impacted just about every market, um, what are you seeing with the decentralization in the big cities? You, you had mentioned you're not in center city. You know, you're on the outskirts. Again, super sound strategy. Um do you think that this is a pattern that, so let me give you a little more context. So I was reading a report recently, uh, Partnership for New York, well-respected organization out here. Um, Kathy Wild at the head of it, super, super well-respected uh, leader in the community. Uh, 8% of the office workers in New York City have returned to work five days a week. A week. 8%, right? Now, 
uh, I know business biz, business speak, and and what I was reading in the report were a lot of these companies saying, yeah, we're going to take a wait and see approach, and and we'll we'll talk in another quarter or two. Folks are starting to embrace this. Okay, people can work from home thing. Let's you know adjust salaries. Let's modify our space. Let's scale back. Let's get out of some of these real expensive digs and and opt for much more affordable space. Do you think that these big cities that have been impacted the most are in for a real long-term correction, or do you think that these things bounce back quick? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, high-rise office is not something I'd want to buy right now. I mean, maybe at the right price, right? Like if I was going to convert it or something, but like I would be really concerned about high-end office um, space. I think that the trend was already away from it. I think that that was going to be a dying space anyway. And what coronavirus did really is it accelerated a trend that already existed. And that's what I was saying about retail too. It's like movies, movie theaters are already dying. Like people, less and less people are going to the movies. They may have a resurgence because they may have gone too far in one direction. And the same thing in office. Like you might see instead of 8% of return to work, Two years from now, it might be 50% return to work, which is great. That's five times as much as now, right? Or six times as much as now. But the problem with that is um, it's still half of where it was, you know, two years ago. And uh, I think, you know, we were going that direction anyway. And to the extent that we were going that direction, that part that was going to go away anyway isn't coming back. I don't know if that's 20% or 50%. I doubt it's 92%, though, right? Like, I I think we're going to see some some resurgence and and there's going to be price correction in that stuff uh because of that and um and that's natural and what coronavirus did is it made it faster and more painful but not necessarily any any uh worse than it would have been otherwise yeah so so uh the the retail decentralization that started to happen in 2005, 2006. Yeah, you've got the Amazon effect, right? Like things like if you can buy something on Amazon, you do. I love Amazon, but you know what happened? And that got accelerated too, because you know what? Things like, um, even things like, I mean, this has not happened yet, but I suspect will happen um, with like Uber Eats and like, you know, all of your DoorDash and stuff. Like I suspect there'll be restaurants that that, that are carry out only that didn't, that didn't exist as carry out only before. Um, and the reason they'll exist is because people have gotten comfortable in the suburbs ordering food. Like right now, if I want, I could have McDonald's delivered to my desk that when I went to Egypt in 2001, they used to have these guys that ran around on little scooters with McDonald's on the side and they would deliver McDonald's. And I actually ordered it one time just cause I thought it was hilarious to get McDonald's delivered. Cause like that wasn't something for us. Right. I don't eat McDonald's now nothing against it but like it's not my thing but uh the point is i think we're going to see restaurants converting away from having dining space or having much less dining space right now you've already seen that in the cities because real estate prices are really high right like like new york has a lot of places that are essentially takeout right but but like that's not common in chattanooga and i think it will be because I think people have gotten used to the delivery stuff. And like, you know, New Year's Eve, my wife and I um, went and picked up food. And I don't think we would have ever done that two years ago, right? Like, and, 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 and we didn't do it because we were afraid of Omicron. We did it because like, 
we just felt like having a nice quiet evening in our house. And you know what? We could have door dashed it or like Uber Eats it or whatever, right? But not every restaurant's gotten on that bandwagon yet. <laughs> and so the place we wanted to go wasn't there yet, but it's going to happen. And it's excel- it would have happened anyway, but it's accelerated dramatically by what we've all gone through collectively. Yeah, we're seeing ghost kitchens. We're seeing places uh, pop up that have no retail presence at all. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it, it, interesting how... And that's going to get to the... It starts in the cities, right? But it's going to get everywhere. Like, like it's going to be like some rural place in Iowa. It's going to have a ghost kitchen. I know I know it's going to happen. <laughs> like, it's, it, that's, that's the way of the world. Uh, absolutely. It's... Uh, world's changing quick, but... There's, there are pivot opportunities out there and there's ways to, as we said in the beginning, get ahead of it and, and take advantage well, of it. You make the most money in chaos anyway. Like, like people that are, that, that stay ahead of this stuff, the people that recognize the trends, they're the ones that make a lot of money. Like, like the, that dude who formed Uber, who, you know, apparently is a terrible person or whatever. Like, I don't know. Cause he got kicked out. I, I don't know, but they're making movies about it and everything. But, but like, like that dude made a lot of money. And and when I first heard of Uber, I was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Like if I want a cab, I'll just call a cab. Right. But no, yeah. it's actually freaking brilliant. Right. Like, like, and, and it's changed how we do everything. Like, like, you know, they Uberfied stuff, right. Like, like I'm surprised that there isn't like a, a big name, like, you know, lawn service. That's like the Uber of lawn care now. Like somebody should do that. Right. Uh, and probably somebody is doing it. I just haven't heard of it yet. Um, and that's going to happen with every, you know, that whole, like, um, you know, the, the decentralized nature of stuff and, you know, this stuff's all going to be on the blockchain. Like I know that, you know, sometimes people think I'm crazy when I say this stuff, but like, um, something like the register of deeds office, I don't know what they call it in New York, but like, you know, that's what we call it in Michigan and Tennessee. Um, that's going to be a blockchain for sure. That's going to be a blockchain yes. and it's going to be really slow before that happens. Cause the government's always the last one on board, but I guarantee you people are gamifying this. They're tokenizing real estate already. I know people that are doing it. It's going to happen. I mean, heck I'm actually contemplating doing a, a reg CF, uh, crowdfunding tokenized version of like a safari lodge in Africa, just because I think it'd be fun to like let people buy like, you know, safari lodge tokens or whatever we call them and let them, uh, you know, go out there and uh, own, you know, one hundredth or a thousandth or even a millionth of a safari lodge. And then they can come to their safari lodge and they can go into the national parks and see lions and elephants and stuff like that. And then they can go back home and be like, I got to hang out at this building I own in Africa. Like people are going to love that. That's the way of the world. People yeah. love that stuff yeah. where they can own tiny pieces of stuff. No question about it. it. Speaks so directly to who the new audience is. We're working on a deal right now, and you, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, where we're tokenizing a, a shopping center essentially, and we're yeah. taking something that was not available to the everyday, uh, never mind everyday investor, to the ever just the everyday person, and giving them an opportunity uh, using the ledger, using blockchain transparency allowing for people to see in real time, having the money disperse and get a real clear, true window into how all this stuff works. And if you do that, there's plenty of money to be made. You know, there's transparency, I think is, is the, the future. That's what sells. That's what people want. And, and it can be not easily, but relatively easily achieved. If you take the time and just, revision things a little bit differently yeah i mean listen if you if you were making wheels 
for wagons, right, at the turn of the last century, uh, you kind of like we're in a dying industry, but that doesn't mean that we aren't better off having cars, right? And that's kind of how I look at this stuff. Like, yeah, there's a lot of things that have accelerated because of COVID, but like, you know, there's like a lot of great stuff that's going to come from it. Now, I mean, I, I, I don't want to minimize the like pain the world has gone through, but I will say this, the people that have inspired me the most are people that have overcome like incredible obstacles and like have changed the way that they live their life because of it. I mean, not all that different than my own story. And that's probably why that resonates really well with me. But like, I believe we've all gone through this like couple of years now of, of global hardship and the whole world has the opportunity to be much, much better because of it. Yeah. There'll be some short-term pain and some people aren't going to survive it. Like that's, that sucks. But like, also, we can come out way, way ahead. So like 10 years from now, I think people are going to look back and be like, this is one of the best things that ever happened to us. Yeah. Listen, this has been uh, an amazing chat. Uh, Jeff, how do people find you? What's the best way for, for folks to find you? You know, I'm not hiding, right? So like it's Jeffrey Holst everywhere. So like, you know, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, uh, whatever, <laughs> you know, just Jeffrey Holst, um, jeffreyholst.com. Uh, but, you know, my real passion, like I said at the beginning of the show is Last Life Ever. Um, and uh, Last Life Ever is just about living the best version of your life. It's one of the two podcasts that I do. But we also have a Last Life Ever private group on Facebook where people can just come and talk about what they're doing, what their goals are, what their dreams are and support each other. And I, I really feel like, you know, that's the place I like to hang out the most. So if you really want to get my attention, that's where you go. Um, and then if you want to see more about real estate, you turn my real estate show, which is old fashioned real estate. And we literally just drink bourbon old fashions and talk about real estate on YouTube. And that's a ton of fun too. So people should check that out as well. This was, this was really great, inspiring, uh, informational. I really enjoyed our chat, Jeff. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. As always, everyone out there, please stay safe.